Each day we're exposed to hundreds of advertisements, TV, radio, magazines, billboards, most of which are telling us that we need more or need to be something other than what we are in order to appear successful. It's the culture of hyper-real consumerism. Consumerism shapes our sense of identity because it informs us of the meaning of success. It tells us what to desire, what to love, and what to have hope in. We are told that we're just one purchase away from happiness. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Brendan Pratt is a Seventh-day Adventist pastor from Melbourne who's been struggling to understand what is standing in the way of church members really getting the most out of their faith. Something that he's come across during his deliberations is the issue of consumerism, a topic on which he's just completed his PhD. I caught up with Brendan Pratt over the phone. I guess I just want to start by establishing the basics, and that's that over the last several years, we've seen a number of commentators, you know, sociologists, authors of different persuasions, all expressing concerns about consumerism. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a, a, was it two or three books called Affluenza, um, which was, you know, trying to diagnose this sort of disease of, of the modern age. You're, you're correct, Kent. There are three books with the title Affluenza. The one most common in Australia is Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis, who wrote a book particularly on Australia. But um, Oliver James, not Jamie Oliver, the chef, Oliver James wrote another book called Affluenza. He also looked at Sydney and affluence. So in their case, they've taken it as a pathological disease. But basically, in Clive Hamble, Richard Dennis' case, they're saying, what's going on in Australia? Why have we lessened in our connectedness to one another? What are the factors that disconnect us from one another? And for them, they've landed on this idea of consumerism, where we commodify people, where we then see time as a function of of money where we're saying, hey, what takes my time takes my happiness. And so for Clive Hamill, Richard Dennis, they're saying, hey, it says this disease that we don't even know is surrounding us, where this affluenza has something that puts our focus on self, removes our focus on traditional values of community. But yeah, so you do have an increasing number of sociologists, psychologists um, from various disciplines looking at what is this consumerism all about? Um, in Tim Cass is probably the most notable psychologist. Mm-hmm. He calls it advanced consumerism because he's saying we've always had consumerism and there are good things about consumerism. But consumerism has delivered some really good things to Western society. You wrote an article in the May edition of Signs of the Times magazine entitled Obsessions About Possessions. And Obsessions. in there, yeah, in there you use a phrase or expression a couple of times. You talk about the consumerist grid. What did you mean by that term and what does it look like when, when a person organizes their life according to a consumerist grid? That's, a, I guess, a catchphrase for saying, hey, well, what's our worldview? So what's a consumerist worldview? Tim Kasser, uh, he wrote a book called High Price of Materialism, and he says it's just the pool we're swimming in where we view the world through what he calls this commodified grid where, without even thinking, we're actually in our minds measuring our happiness, looking at products, experiences, and people to say how does that product, experience, or person contribute to my happiness. Many people will point out that, hey, this consumer grid isn't delivering happiness, 
but Tim Kasser points out that, well, without even thinking, we live that grid anyway. He says it's just the pool we swim in, it's just the society we've grown up in, that we live by this consumer grid where we put our trust in commodity or, more precisely, we put our trust in our ability to get more. Consumerism is not so much about what we have, it's the attachment to what we don't have yet. Okay. And in that attachment we don't have yet, I think the most significant version of me is going to be found in getting more or getting that experience or getting that product. Mm. Do you think this is an expression of, of our you know, capitalist economic system? Because basically, you know, it's based on the idea that we need economic growth, you know, that every year we need yep. to produce more than we produced before. So to wind that back a little bit, well, the same guy who wrote Affluenza, Clive Hamilton, wrote a book called Growth Fetish, and he would mm. agree with you saying, hey, our obsession with economic growth, is that where the problem lies? And he says, hey, what about if our nightly news had a measurement of well-being and if it said Australians are, you know, this scale on their well-being tonight, mm. rather than all our measurements are by economic metrics. There ha- actually have been some countries that have looked at uh, gross national happiness, haven't they, in- instead of you know, gross have, national product? I- instead of an economic measurement. But then to wind that back again, is it simply part of our capitalist economic um, system? Good question in that can you have capitalism without advanced consumerism? And we'd say yes, because for a long time we did have capitalism without what we see as the downsides of advanced consumerism at the moment. Mm. Was capitalism required to breed the advanced consumerism we have? Yes, partly so. We needed that, and we needed the ability to mass market, and we needed the industrialization, and we needed even the Protestant work ethic. We need a whole lot of things to mix together to get what we see as advanced consumerism. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, even non-capitalist systems are now being easily commodified for consumeristic purposes. Do you mean China, for example? Are you talking about China or places like that? Yeah, well, you've talked about China, or there's a whole lot of research at the moment, Kent, that looks at even Buddhist systems of simplification and how they're being commodified for consumable ends. Wow. And so it's really quite intriguing to, to think how pervasive consumerism is. Sure, it's grown up in capitalism, but it can take any system of thought or any expression for its own commodifiable consumable ends. Mm, um, mm. which makes it intriguing because it, it means that the answer to consumerism is not anti-consumerism because consumerism even commodifies anti-consumerism for its own commodifiable oh. ends. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting irony. So if, if it's not necessarily capitalism per se that is causing you know, so many of us to have this attitude that I've, I need more stuff, I've got to keep buying things in order to be happy, in order to be a, a worthy person, which is the essence of consumerism, as I understand you're saying. Is it advertising? Is that what's causing that, that change in, in our psychology and, and our attitudes? Or, or is it perhaps the fact that we you know, now have mass media communications and the, and the internet and all this sort of stuff that is constantly pushing these messages and these images of you know, what is possible and what products are out there and what innovations are happening and you know, in, inviting us and encouraging us to, to be a part of that? And as I say, you'll, get a whole, you'll, you'll read books that debate this for a long time, what factors and to what extent did they lead to consumerism. But, but advertising is certainly one that everyone would agree on, that we needed that mass advertising. Mm. At the same time, you get another group of people who said, hey, without the enlightenment, we wouldn't get consumerism either because you get this scientific rationalist point of view mm-hmm. that places you simply as a human and what else do you live for beyond 
what you experience, what you can get now. And so there's that aspect to it. There's the advertising aspect to it. There's the capitalism part to it, um, Protestant worth equity part to it, saying it's God's blessing when you accumulate. There's, a, there's all sorts of factors that come together to shape what we see as this advanced consumerism and, and simply the ability um, for us to accumulate all those all those goods. The, the fact that we are a wealthy country and, and we can buy these things actually reinforces these attitudes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so all of that comes together to form this idea of advanced consumerism. To separate any of those bits out is really quite a complicated thing to unravel. But in the end, any of the commentators who, to what extent they say this was shaped, they all agree on that what it results in is this what they call commodification, where we're mm. able to commodify products, but then able to commodify people. And that's probably the biggest danger. Yeah. And I, actually, I wanted to go there. So so a commodity is something that you can buy and sell, I, I guess, when it comes down to it. Like we, we have commodities markets and, and things like that. But you say it can apply to people. So ex- explain to me, like walk us through it. What does it mean to commodify a, a relationship, for example? Once again, Tim Casso, the psychologist, probably written the most on this, where he's saying from the age of seven is what he looks at, is saying that children have the ability, we've taught them to commodify, we've taught them through advertising how to quickly look at a product and say, this is what it means to my happiness. But then they have the ability to do that with people and say, how well does that person contribute to my happiness? And in so doing, we turn people into commodities where they simply, Mm. they're another product that exists for my happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we've always treated people in all sorts of ways. Mm. But when in consumerism, we have this ability to on a mass scale, turn people into products. Now, whether that's industrialization, where people no longer do the whole of the process, they become a part of a production line, mm. whether that's a factor of you know, even our, our view of sexuality, where you know, pornography is the commodification of a person, where they become a product. Yes. Um, we, don't to, we don't want to enter their story. We don't want to know who they are. We don't want to know their goals and their dreams. We don't want to know their hopes and their future. We want none of that. We simply want what they can offer to my happiness. Mm-hmm. So this, this is but an expression that, that we use quite often where we say often uh, women are seen as sex objects. So like, this is exactly what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and Zygmunt Bowman, the sociologist, you know, he, he spends a lot of time talking about this liquid modern culture whereby part of that is using people as a product to my happiness. And beyond that, um, I discard them. Now, obviously, a, sexual happiness is one aspect of that, mm. but that can be in a whole lot of ways. I, I can be using people around me as commodity rather than seeing them as, as people in their own rights. I see them to the extent they contribute to my happiness. Mm. So, so it could be you, you have a partner, for example, who um, you say, look, you, you don't make me happy anymore. I used to feel warm and, and cozy around you and you're just not you know, doing and saying the things that, that I need anymore. So it's over. Or, or even with children. You know, I, I had these children because I wanted to redesign my life and, and, and reinvent myself in a certain way. I, I want to be a parent and having a child allows me to adopt that identity, but the novelty wears off, I guess. And, and you see examples of that, um, Kent, and, and you see examples where they refer to their children in commodified terms. And you'll see, you even see parents who will refer to their child as the brand and developing the brand of my child. Mm. Um, and it feeds into this whole whole commodification process. Mm, wow. Are, are, there, are there areas of life too where we might like take on this um, commodification sort of attitude? Um, 
I, I guess I think, you know, sometimes you, you might go out for a, a walk in the bush or, or you see a sunset or something and, and a part of you just wants to sit there and admire it and just immerse yourself in it. But there's this other part of yourself that says, I need to capture this. I need to grab this. I need to take a photo of this, you know, and share it on social media. And I mean, is that a commodification of, of an experience in some way? Um, strangely, yes. Now, keep in mind, uh, are we going to live life? Yes. Are we going to take photos of beautiful things? Yes. Yeah. And what might be commodification for one person is certainly not for another person. But if that person is living their life through a grid that's saying, how are other people seeing me? And social media allows me to become my own marketable product. Mm. So in social media, I become the commodity. I am the commodity and I'll present myself as a commodity. Now, me sharing the fact that I saw a beautiful sunset is one thing, but if I'm sharing that as part of trying to develop this brand and trying to develop you know, this idea of, you know, you're going to think this of me because I've shared this particular image, then we probably do need to take a step back and think, how do we commodify ourselves and how do we present ourselves as commodity? Mm. But it relates to all areas of life. And this is the pervasive nature of it all. Getting involved in nature is one way we can address commodification. Mm. You know, we, we commodify our spirituality. Um, you now we commodify all, all areas of life can be filtered through this, what we refer to as this consumer grid, because we spend so much of our time looking at the world through commodified eyes. Mm. Um, and we look at what's in it for me. So I'll pretend to, I'll you know, go to a particular um, entertainment event or whatever the case, and I'll say, well, what was, this, what was in this for me? And we want more commodifiable, usable experiences. And so, for instance, once upon a time, we might have watched five days of cricket, then we watched one day of cricket, now we want a 2020 experience because we want <laughs> more glitz, more glamour, we want it done quickly, we want it over, we want that experience so we can move on to another experience. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, is, is, it, is there anything inherently wrong with lucky 2020? <laughs> But it is another example of how we try and commodify the experience and package it into shorter and shorter, more usable, consumable products. Sure, sure. And so we do that with a lot of things. Um, we want the, the usable, consumable pat. Well, I, 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 and I, I, in so I, I, doing, we abstract from our culture in, and turn our culture into short consumer bites. I just wanted to go back. You mentioned it's possible to commodify our spirituality and and that's a sort of a strange thing. I'd just like you to unpack that a little bit for me because, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that you, you know, as, as a pastor might be selling spirituality as a solution to, to consumerism and commodification. I imagine we'll, we'll get onto that in a minute. But before we do, how can our, our faith or our spirituality be, you know, commodified in, in an unhealthy way? We market spirituality. So we live in a culture whereby I will take the token of spirituality, like I might buy a candle at dusk that has Eastern mysticism connotations or whatever, or meditative kind of, or mm -hmm. whatever it's going to be. I'll take the symbol of it um, without buying into the bigger story. And we can do the same with scripture. We can take commodifiable pieces of the Bible mm -hmm. rather than entering into the whole story of. We can do the same with the way that we evaluate a worship experience. We might attend a, a church service and we walk away using the same categories we would to measure a movie, for instance, yeah. to say what was in that for me, forgetting that you know, a religious experience is about worshipping a bigger deity rather than I put myself at the centre and I measure it by what's in it for me and I'll make a commodifiable spirituality where I, you know, I might take a little bit of Christianity, I might take a little bit of you know, Dalai Lama, I might take a little bit of something I heard on Oprah and I will make my own piece of commodifiable spirituality. Wow. Um, and it's a very fluid, 
fluid expression of spirituality. And so it is interesting, an interesting world to think what's it look like mm. when we present and we do present religiosity as a consumable product uh, because we are presenting it to consumers. But at what point do we grow beyond treating it as a consumable product um, for it to be something more essentially bigger than that? Yeah. And, and I guess, Brendan, we, we, I mean, you'd have to admit that sometimes, you know, uh, churches and, and religious organizations are, are guilty of perhaps commodifying spirituality themselves in terms of, hey, guess what? You know, um, m- motivational, inspirational speaker, you know, X has put out a new book, um, you know, amazing new insights and, oh, wow, I've got the whole collection of this speaker's books or, or this speaker's DVDs or, um, you know, I've watched all yeah. their YouTube videos. Um, it becomes a very product-oriented affair, doesn't it? And once again, there might not be anything wrong with having that person's products. But when we present it as a consumable product, then people will treat it as a consumable product. Um, and it's just another category on the market. You know, in my job as a pastor, it's very easily to want to present what I'm presenting as a better option than what someone else is presenting. And mm-hmm. so we will dress it up in commodifiable terms because that's how, how we work. Yeah, be, be, um, because we're trying to speak to the culture. And if the culture is a consumerist culture, then it's very, very tempting to, um, to address your spiritual messages in those cultural terms. Yeah, and consumerism isn't all bad, Ken. It's when, it's when it commodifies people and when it destroys relationships and when it destroys those factors that bring about well-being and a healthy flourishing of a culture, that's when we have a problem. Mm. But there's mm. upsides in it as well. So we've got to keep in mind that, hey, let's not just be down with consumerism, but let's be careful that consumerism isn't taking us to places that ultimately leave us in a less connected a society that's less healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in, in summary, would it be fair to say that, that this whole phenomenon of consumerism is, is basically encouraging us to be incredibly self-centered? Is that what it comes down to? Your basic selfishness, really? Yeah. Now, this might, this might be overstating the case, Kent, but I see consumerism as institutionalized selfishness. We've always had selfishness, Yeah. but, but never to the extent of it being institutionalized as a value in itself that um, we almost worship the selfish now. Mm-hmm. So it is institutionalized selfishness. Yeah, yeah. And you hear all these messages, you know, you, you deserve it, um, you're worth it, um, that, that continually... It's all about you. Yeah, it's all about you. Yep. It's, it's all about me, yeah. And I think in, in your article you used the phrase, you know, the, the God of me, um, which is, you know, quite, quite a scary thought. So let, let's turn our attention now, Brendan, to, to the solution because... In, in your article, you do point to a better way and you go to an interesting place to, to find um, some answers. You look at the, the ancient Hebrew prophet Daniel, which is interesting. I mean, he's living in, you know, pagan Babylon, you know, around the time of Nebuchadnezzar and all this sort of stuff. There obviously aren't a lot of, um, you know, Instagram feeds, you know, influencing his, um, his taste in, in shoes or, or toothpaste. So what, what was it about the story of Daniel that sort of grabbed you and, and helped do you relate to this issue? Daniel is an intriguing one because it's a story of a young guy who's far away from home, living in a different culture, living in Babylon, where they change his name to a Babylonian name, they educate him in Babylonian, but he, he stays true to his different value system, even though he's successful in Babylon. So I've equated that to, hey, we're in consumer culture. You and I are going to consume, we're going to buy clothes, we're going to see advertising, we're going to buy food, but our heart can belong elsewhere. So Daniel purposes in his heart. And I guess that's where I picked up on that theme, that 
what do we purpose that we live for? Left to our own drift, we're going to drift into this culture of consumerism. And it's just everywhere. We're going to see 3,000 advertisements a day telling us to be something else, buy something else, have something else. So it's about recalibrating. And that's where I use Daniel as an example of recalibrating around deeper values. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's where I find one of the answers. Can you recount to us, Brendan, just some of the experiences that, that Daniel had that you feel sort of link with this experience? Because not, not all of our listeners will you know, necessarily be familiar with um, you know, the whole story of Daniel. So for Daniel at the start, um, now he's in a, a foreign empire and the king says, you know, here's all the king's food. Daniel chooses not to eat the king's food. Now, some people say that's because it had been offered to, to idols. Some people say that's because it meant that you were identifying with the king's values. Some people say it was you know, for health reasons. Whatever reason amongst all that, Daniel has decided that, hey, I might be in Babylon, but I don't have to, to participate in Babylon. Um, now, later on, it becomes very successful. But then there's a, a time where, you know, if he worships God and he had this practice of intentionally recalibrating and facing towards home, um, no praying to, to God, if he prays to God, he's going to get thrown in the lion's den. He decides that, well, it doesn't really matter because for him, it's not about him. Now, he belongs to a bigger picture and whether he's successful or not in Babylon's eyes isn't what he's measuring it by. And he's also, you know, when the king offers him, he's able to interpret a dream for the king that no one else can. And the king offers him all these goods. He goes, well, it's not even me. It's God who's given me this clever mind. So Daniel's able to realize that life is not even about him, um, that he, he gives God the glory for his mind. He realizes he's living for a bigger purpose. Um, and it's about that recalibration time, hmm. which is one of the other things that I often pick up on when I'm talking about consumerism is this idea of Sabbath. Okay. Um, where Sabbath, Sabbath is this mark against consumerism because it's this period of time where I remove myself from consumerism. Um, and for me personally, you know, Sabbath is this time where I will take a break from commodification. I'll take a break from advertising. I'll take a break from buying and selling. I'll take a break from time equals money. I'll take a break from try, trying to produce because of the recalibration point where I'm able to recalibrate around values of family, values of you know, deeper spirituality where I'm able to remember what am I here for. I might be in an empire surrounded by consumerism, but I have a different set of values to what the commodified consumer valuables will take me to otherwise. I see the Sabbath as a resistance to consumerism. Yeah. So, so when you talk about Sabbath, Brendan, you, you're talking about a 24-hour period out of every week and, and not one of your own choosing necessary, but, but one that is actually outlined in the Bible. And what did you say? You, you, so you don't work. I mean, I guess a lot of people know, you know, Sabbath is a day of rest, but you also, did you say what, stay away from social media, stay away from mass media, you, you don't shop. I mean, yeah, so, so, take a break from commodification. Yeah, some people would say, what, what, what else is there left to do? So <laughs> what, what, what do you do well, during the, that time? This is the thing. I disengage so I can engage. Okay. So I disengage from consumerism. I disengage from commodification. I disengage from my television. I disengage from you know, trying to earn an income. I disengage from even paying the bills. Yeah. I disengage so I can engage. What do I engage in? I engage in time with my, in my marriage. I engage in time with my family. I engage in time with my church family in that space. I engage in serving in my community. I engage in time for, for growth as me as a person. I just engage with, well, nature is one of the things I particularly engage in. Can I do that any day of the week? Yes, I can. Mm. But there's so many things that crowd that out. By me making that space, 
I disengage from one side of things so I can engage in what matters. And for me, that's a recalibration space mm. where I can think, well, what am I giving my life to? Am I commodifying people? Am I you know, being caught up in this idea of I'm defining myself by products or defining myself by you know, and the need for more? Um, it just it gives me a recalibration space. Wow. So, whereas before you, you were saying that in some ways consumerism is institutionalized selfishness, I noticed that a lot of the activities that you said you choose to engage in on Sabbath are very other focused. You know, they're focused on your family, they're focused on your friends, they're focused on your community, they're, they're focused on, on your God. Would, would that be a fair characterization? And it is fair. And to go back to what I said earlier, where I said anti-consumerism is not the opposite to consumerism. Um, so, anti-consumerism, you know, like it occupies Sydney down with capitalism movement, that becomes commodified. The opposite to consumerism is relationships and healthy community. Healthy mm. community is the opposite of consumerism um, because it is outward focused. A genuine interest in other people works against consumerism. Now, consumerism tries to commodify community. Brands try to create branded community mm-hmm. with sorts of commodified online communities. But genuinely healthy community, when I'm in genuine relationship with other people, that's the opposite to consumerism. Mm-hmm. In the article you, you wrote in Signs of the Times for us, you, you quote a saying of Jesus where he said, um, he said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Do you, do you see a connection between what Jesus said and, and what you've been saying about consumerism? Yeah, for sure. Because the treasure in heaven is people. Yeah. Um, so investing into people now is what matters for eternity. Storing up treasures on earth, um, sure, I, I can accumulate more. I can play a whole game of Monopoly where I own the whole board. Yeah. But then it simply all goes back in the box. And what matters beyond that, it's still people. Um, and so when Jesus says store up treasures in heaven, I think he's saying pour your life into people because that's what matters for eternity. Mm, yeah, wow. It's interesting that in, in that passage, Jesus actually says, he says, look, don't store up treasure on earth where moths um, you know, eat your clothes and, and where rust you know, rusts things and where thieves break in and, and destroy. And, and that really reminds me of the fact that you know, if every time you buy something, it, it needs a, an upgrade after a while. You know, economists have this expression, you know, the law of diminishing returns. And I think it applies to a lot of aspects in life that you know, when you first get something new, it's all exciting, but then the next day you see it and, oh, that's cool. I'm glad about that. And the third day it's, yeah, that's cool. And you know, three weeks down three. the track, you, you take it totally for granted that the pleasure you get out of things does seem to diminish over time. Yeah, and if we stop back, so back to analyze that, we'd agree with you, Kent. Um, but reality is, clever advertising tells me that I need the next iPhone. Clever advertising tells me that I need to upgrade my car. Clever advertising tells me that what I have now doesn't make me a valuable person unless I have the better version of it. And I know that I can easily start believing those things I see and I can look at my phone and look at someone else's phone and think I do need that next thing, but I do need the upgrade. Plus, mm-hmm. this is a disposable society where we're yeah. assuming it's going to be upgraded anyway. Yeah, and, and as you say, the scary thing is when we start viewing people as disposable. Um, just just before we finish, um, th- there's another a Bible passage that y- you quote in your article. Um, you quote the Apostle Paul who, who said, um, uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I mean, that's a really powerful statement. You know, we've been talking about, you know, the pattern of this world, you know, the grid, as you talk about the consumer grid. Um, wh- what's Paul really talking about when he talks about, you know, don't conform, but be transformed? What sort of transformation is he, is he encouraging there? 
Yeah, and I like the message paraphrase of that. I'm not always a big fan of paraphrases, but the message paraphrase is that we fit in without even thinking. Mm. And that's what we can do. Without even thinking, we just simply fit in. But what we're getting out of Paul when he says, be transformed, you say there's another grid, there's another system, there's another kingdom to be living for. Sure, there's a consumer empire, but amongst all that, there's another kingdom to, to be focusing on. And that's when he says, fix your attention on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus is living this whole put others ahead of yourself, uh, no, forgive other people, live in deep relationship with other people. It's a people matter thing. Fix your attention on Jesus. And it says, unlike the world around you that drags you down, is how the message paraphrases, um, Christ will bring out maturity in you. And I, I think that's an important point that Paul's making. Um, but is Paul talking about consumerism? No, but he's talking about a culture that can, we can get molded into our culture's values very easily. And whether that's Paul writing or whether it's talking today, we can still get molded into a cultural system of thinking that turns people into commodity and misses what the most important things in life are. Wow. Now, that's, that's really, really powerful stuff, um, Brendan. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. And, and I certainly would encourage our listeners, you know, to explore, you know, that transformation that the Apostle Paul is talking about. As you mentioned, Brendan, it, it's, it is about relationship. And, and I guess the most important relationship of all is, is that relationship with Jesus, which, you know, has that potential to transform your outlook, transform your values, you know, transform all, all your other relationships and, and give a, you know, a, a brand new start. I mean, we'll still be living within you know, within the empire, um, you know, as Daniel was in Babylon, yeah. but yeah. yeah, but there's a, a, I guess another motivation and, and another, a, a greater kingdom, um, that, you know, that can guide us and, and push us forward. And we'll see the world with different glasses on. Yeah. Hey, thanks very much, Brendan. I really appreciate your You're time and, and your expertise and, and thanks for writing that article for us. It's, it's a pleasure to be able to chat about it. Thank you, Ken. All right. See you then. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. Adventist Media.